Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. We always treat Brandywine and Germantown as uh, as American disasters, and uh, certainly it, it led to the cabal. So obviously Congress and and um, and peripherally that's how people looked at it. But the soldiers didn't look at it that way. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributors Gary Echelbarger and Michael Harris discussing the numerical strength of George Washington's army during the Philadelphia campaign, and they're our guests today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guests are Journal of the American Revolution contributors Gary Echelbarger and Michael Harris, and they'll be discussing George Washington's numerical numerical troop strength during the Philadelphia Campaign of 1777. This is really kind of a milestone uh, for someone who works in 18th century documents like myself, because on the podcast we're able to get not one but two guests simultaneously to discuss their new article. Makes sense because they co-authored it. It's a wonderful conversation from two men who love this stuff. I promise you that. And you'll learn a lot. I certainly did. So be sure to check out their article at www.allthingsliberty.com. Sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Gary Echelbarger and Michael Harris. Gary Echelbarger and Michael Harris, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brady. It's, uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yeah, thank you, Bree, for having us. This is uh, uh, looking forward to having this discussion. Tell us about your backgrounds. Okay, um, my background actually is in science. I, for the last thirty years, I've worked in a hospital, um, primarily devising tube feed regimens for patients that are critically ill in ICUs. So there's there is no history crossover here. So my my second profession is, is the history field, which I've also been working at for now uh, uh, about 30 years. And uh, primarily it started in the Civil War in terms of writing. But for touring, I did a lot of Civil War and Revolutionary War tours as well. And um, over the last uh, couple of years, I've published a lot in the Journal of American Revolution. And I'm currently working on my first revolution book on, uh, on following a year of of the revolution from the summer of 77 to 78 uh, from the, from the standpoint of Washington and his headquarters. Okay. And uh, my name is Mike Harris. And unlike Gary, I actually, my background actually is in history. So I, um, I have a uh, BA in historic preservation from university of Mary Washington and a master's in military history from the American military university. Um, I worked at Fredericksburg Battlefield, um, and then later on, uh, eventually ended up at Brandywine Battlefield, uh, working as a historian, uh, as a historian there. 
Um, and all that kind of eventually led to me working on my first book um, on Brandywine. Um, and in the midst of working on that, I moved into a new career, and I teach high school now. Um, and then last year, my book on Germantown was published. So I have two books out on the Philadelphia campaign and cur- currently working on a third volume to cover the back end of that campaign. So that's my background. And uh, if I can piggyback on for that a second, Mike and I actually um, met for the first time. I guess we met briefly several years ago when I had a tour at Brandy. Yeah, a long time ago. Mike, <laughs> a long time ago. But, but during COVID, we were both getting stir crazy in our houses and we both happened to be uh, writing about the same period of the war, but with books that uh, don't compete with each other at all. So we were able to um, share our interests and our research ideas. And we've been getting together periodically in the field and, and of course, uh, a lot through correspondences. Yeah. Going out, finding some of these sites that we write about. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, it basically started, um, in the spring, we, uh, we did an article on, uh, sort of busting the myth on how many troops marched into Valley Forge for the march in on December 19th. And that kind of stemmed from, I, I was doing some preliminary research on the White Marsh operation and looking at the troop numbers for, for how many, uh, guys Washington had camped at White Marsh. And, the numbers I was finding were exceptionally high compared to what they were supposedly were three weeks later when they arrived at Valley Forge. And so I said that, you know, I kind of emailed Gary. I'm like, you know, I'm finding that the numbers for Valley Forge should be much higher. And we kind of went back and forth and started actually looking at some of the troop returns. And that turned into the, uh, the article we did um, in the spring. And then over the summer, Gary contacted me and he said, you know, we should kind of take a dig at, um, what the numbers were throughout the campaign, trying to piece it together and get more accurate numbers for the major battles and, and different time points um, for the entire fall. And then uh, we started doing some more digging, and that, that's kind of what led to this article. And I'll add to that, um, uh, we we were initially going without uh, without having any new findings at the time, we were going to try to piece together the, the summer and fall troop strength. And then Mike had a, had a, uh, a nifty idea since Timothy Pickering was the adjutant general um, hired in June. Um, he corresponded um, with the uh, Massachusetts Historical Society and, and uh, was able to get somebody to delve into the Pickering papers. And that gave us the, the two returns. And, and credit to Mike when he initially <laughs> came up with his Brandywine troop strength many, many years ago, the, the numbers that we came uh, close to with, uh, with an actual return just uh, 10 days or eight days before um, uh, proved Mike just about right on that one. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I, that was, that was pure. Cause it, all we had to work with prior to the, 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 the discovery in the Pickering papers Basically, what we were working with, there was um, a known May return and then a known um, November, early November return with no known existing returns in between. And so, you know, anybody writing about Brandywine or Germantown prior to us finding these Pickering things, it was pretty much guesswork of trying to backtrack or move forward with those two returns to try to come up with an estimate of army strength, but I, I, I feel pretty confident with what we 
what we came up with with those two Pickering returns. For some context for our readers and listeners, uh, what was going on during the war in 1777? Yeah, um, so there's basically two major operations going on almost simultaneously. So you've got John Burgoyne's operation coming down out of Canada that results in fighting at Fort Ty, Conderoga, and Bennington, and the Saratoga campaign, uh, ultimately ending with the surrender of Burgoyne's army. Um, basically, roughly at the same time as all that's happening, William Howe is leading an army uh, by ship from New York uh, around the Delmarva Peninsula, landing in northeastern Maryland, and that's the Philadelphia campaign resulting in the major fighting at Brandywine and Germantown and fighting along the Delaware River. So that's all kind of happening at the same time, and it affects Washington, well, both of them. It affects uh, both Howe and Washington's decision-making at various time points through the midsummer and really into the late fall. And um, so that that's kind of what's going on. And... Uh, yeah, that's what's going on. Gentlemen, uh, what are our traditional methods of measuring troop strength in the 18th century? Well, uh, Mike alluded to it um, just briefly before. We, uh, we have to use whatever returns are available. And when we say tradition, I guess our, our tradition now is about 45 years old. There was a nice um, bicentennial era book published that actually took a lot of the, the monthly returns throughout the war uh, in the National Archives and compiled them in a more user-friendly form because each of the templates of these returns is 29, uh, 29 columns. <laughs> so he made it a little more user-friendly. And by he, I mean Charles Lesser, who published something called Sinews of Independence. Uh, I think it was in 1976. I think that book is... Uh, is very underappreciated, um, uh, certainly underutilized. And despite um, having some uh, very extensive returns published throughout the period, he, there were a lot that were missing. Um, so when it comes to our traditional way of, of using the troop strength before his book was published, a lot relied on whatever Washington relayed in a letter to Congress or to a, a letter that people had been citing. And uh, for example, when it came to um, our first article about the Valley Forge troop strength, that traditional number that's always been used was 11,000. That simply comes from Washington writing to uh, the Continental Congress, uh, claiming that uh, the strength of his army, when you add up his uh, present for duty and, and those present but without shoes, something just, uh, just a tad over 11,000 and for 150 years, We've been using that number without without the actual return to uh, confirm that. So the traditional method of, of returns is simply um, uh, estimates that are provided in uh, in letters. Very few actual returns were were ever used, and whenever they are used, I'll add that they tend not to not to depict the army as it really existed. Sometimes they just call call out the numbers of rank and file, meaning privates. Uh, that are present for duty, and they don't include the other huge um, um, portion of an encampment or even a, an attacking or a defensive force, which includes, of course, the uh, officers. And in this case, uh, these numbers are usually just depicted as infantry, so you have to include, of course, artillery and cavalry as well. One of the great things about this article is that some new discoveries have shed some new light on, on our analysis of the event. Could you talk about the new discoveries in Washington's army? 
Well, the the source, the main sources are are re-looking at uh, Lesser's numbers, uh, but as well coming up with those two returns that came out of the Pickering papers that we talked about just a, a few minutes earlier. And the Pickering papers, uh, troop strength numbers weren't compiled in the in the traditional template that we normally would see on a on a Revolutionary War return that we could get out of the National Archives and. And during COVID, for Mike and I, it mostly has been through our Fold3.com accounts, but they're there. And uh, it basically was a summary, but it was a, a fairly complete summary, at least it was for infantry. And, uh, and those two returns, one, I believe, was uh, called for on September 1st and took a couple of days to complete. So we know that by September 4th, it was reported out. And then the other one, I think, came out on... Uh, September 24th. So we have those two reports that had that had filled in this this incredible yawning gap of returns that Mike had mentioned between May 20th and uh, and November 3rd, where we had had a return before. And the problem with using the May uh, 20th uh, return is that it's almost like measuring a uh, uh, a teenager's height and weight that's in the middle of a growth spurt. The army tripled in size between between March and at least the end of May. So we uh, catching that, catching that return uh, in the middle of May um, does, uh, does at least uh, give the possibility for, um, uh, for an underestimation of real strength if the army continues to grow. So we're very, we're very fortunate to have those two returns. And what they tell us are are quite a number of things. If we're able to, to uh, slip it into, um, a trend line. And one of the trend lines I've, I've uh, learned to appreciate is that when you look at the Army from that September 3rd return to the December 3rd return, and, and Washington's Army accumulated more brigades at that time. But if you look at the initial 11 to 12 brigades that are with the Army at that time, uh, you realize that, um, that there's actually a fairly low desertion rate, uh, at least seemingly so. And, and, uh, and that uh, is something that we um, uh, highlighted in our article. And the most important part about those returns, and I think this is something that nobody's really, um, maybe people have had a, a thought about it, but now it, it's, it's spelled right out to you. When you count militia and all the Continental Infantry, artillery, and cavalry, Washington has over 18,000 men in that Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania theater in those first couple weeks of September, right up to the Battle of Brandywine. And he outnumbers how, at least in the qua- uh, <laughs> in the quantity of troops, not in the quality of troops, of course. But I think uh, I think that always has gone underappreciated, and our those new returns really uh, bring that out. Is that Washington had had uh, uh, probably a larger army than most people uh, really appreciate. Which of these returns are still missing, and how do we deal with that fact as historians? The idea that we just don't have this information. Okay. Well, for the uh, there are things that are missing from the returns that we have. <laughs> so let me start out with that and then talk about the missing ones. Though so what's missing from the returns that we have in those fall of 1777 months, and we know this by what's uh, included in the template from the more complete 1778 returns, are a number of things. We don't have a we don't have a a column uh, for total losses, and that I call that the three Ds. The uh, desertions, deaths, and discharges. We don't, we don't have that. We don't have that at all in, in 1777. We also don't have any way to column officers that are still present 
but may be considered sick. Uh, where we have that for the rank and file, we don't have officers that are on command. And that on command, um, that those two words, I think have always misled people into believing that um, that they were away from camp when in fact uh, uh, roughly 58 to 60% of them on any given date are just um, doing other duties within the camp, uh, but are still are still present in the camp and can be used uh, to fight in battles if, if, if one is imminent. Uh, we don't have that kind of number for the officers at all. So there's a lot of things still missing from the returns that we have. And what you asked um, initially, what's missing on the returns? Well, realize even with the two discoveries in the Pickering papers, we now only have four returns between May 21st and December 3rd. All right. So, so there, there's uh, uh, and and we do know that from the time that Pickering took over as adjutant general, that there was a premium being placed on trying to compile weekly returns. We see this by request to uh, General Sullivan, who um, essentially had a detached division for almost half of 1777, and he was always prodded uh, to, um, to compile a weekly return. So we know that those weekly returns were called for throughout the Army. We just don't have them available yet. Hopefully they're just misfiled and we'll, we'll eventually find them. But that's at least 25 more returns. Uh, just for that period in 1777. So while we celebrate our four returns that we have, um, we we really would like to have the missing returns. And while I'm saying that for missing returns, I don't want to shortchange the importance of the of the dragoons and the uh, artillery because not until December do we even have any idea about the uh, numerical strength of the Continental Infantry, or excuse me, the Continental. Uh, cavalry and the Continental Artillery. So we actually had to kind of derive um, earlier numbers from the returns that came in December. And from that too, we we don't know the composition of the of the artillery pieces throughout much of 1777. We don't know the the number of horses or even the number of wagons. There's still so much missing from the returns that um, and, and from missing returns that that hopefully is still available out there that can be uh, discovered someday. Yeah, and just to follow up on what Gary's saying, um, the artillery one's huge. I know my publisher, every time I've, the first two books, he was always asking me when we're going through the editing, what's the number and composition of the guns, the artillery guns? And I don't know. You know, it's just, it's one of those big mysteries, and it's, it's kind of an important one. Um, and actually, we didn't talk about this in the article, but we did find in those Pickering papers a December return for the um, composition and the guns that uh, I know Gary and I are planning on using when we're writing about White Marsh in our new books, at least I am. Um, but that's kind of why I didn't put it in the article, because I was kind of saving it for when I write about White Marsh. But that's the first one Gary and I have found, I think, period, right? Gary, we haven't found another one, have we? Right, no. Not, and, and in fact, I wasn't uh, I wasn't even prodding you to, to, to bring that one out. I was thinking no, about... I, I, but it's kind of many... important, I, and I, you know, people need right. to know that they must be out there somewhere. Right. And I was I was actually uh, 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 talking about that because I was like, we don't even know really how many guns were captured at Brandywine. Right. No, not for sure. Not for sure. We, I mean, yeah. we have a guess based on what the British say. Every British source. Has right. A but that would number, be so. Right. So it'd be nice to know what what those were on September 3rd and October 3rd. Then you could just, you know, subtract it yeah. and figure that. But we we have no way of knowing that at this stage. Yeah. You guys break down uh, a lot of good information in your article as far as understanding that not all troop numbers are equal. 
Could you talk about the difference between an attacking force and an encampment force? Yeah, actually, we kind of have, we kind of came up with three different versions. Um, an encampment force, a defending force, and an attacking force. So an encampment force would be something like the bulk of the time they're camped at White Marsh, or when they're camped at Valley Forge later in the campaign, or um, you can even argue maybe even while they're at the Gulf prior to going into Valley Forge. So that's everybody with the Army. So that's sick president, that's uh, sick officers president, present, uh, uh, um, a percentage of the on-command force, um, assuming they were within, you know, a couple miles of the army by foot or maybe five miles by horse. So it's everybody. It's paymasters, it's quartermasters, it's staff officers like, you know, hospital stewards and chaplains and paymasters. And so that's everybody that's within this environment, environment of the camp that has to be supplied and fed, but not necessarily everybody capable of pulling a trigger in time of battle. So then your next, you know, your next kind of number is a defending force. What if that encampment were attacked? What percent of that force camped there could grab a rifle and run to the line and help defend that encampment or that position? So, you know, we, uh, uh, Gary found a, a, a number, I forget which return, but in 1778 he found on the back of one of the returns um, uh, a formula the adjutant general was using at the time of what percentage of the sick and on and on and on command could uh, help defend the camp, and um, I forget was it sixty percent of the sick present, Gary? I forget the number now. Two, he used a fra- he used a fraction two thirds. Okay, so yeah, two thirds of the sick present were considered able to defend the camp, and fifty eight percent of the uh, on command com was considered able to defend the camp. So, you know, you got to make those, you know, you make a calculation, and so your defending force is smaller than your encampment force. And then the last one we kind of broke down was how many people in that camp could launch an attack. And that's most important, say, for right prior to Germantown, when the armies camped in these Methacton Hills northwest of Germantown, and then they're going to march down four different roads to go attack Germantown. Well, everybody at that camp... Um, is not going to be physically fit or have a job that requires them to join these attacking columns. Um, in fact, I, I have multiple American accounts saying a lot of guys are left behind to defend to protect the wagon train that didn't go with them. So, um, so from basically what that means is you you know the the sick present aren't going to be going on that march. Even the the two thirds normally able to defend your camp, and then we calculated that roughly. Um, 40% of the on-command would join the uh, an attack, um, but then none of your staff officers, none of your sick present officers, um, you know, quartermasters, paymasters, you know, those jobs that are rear echelon-type jobs are not going to join the marching comms to go launch an attack. And so that's your smallest force available. So your biggest force is who's camped there, um, sort of in the middle, is who could defend that camp if it was attacked, and then your smallest force is how many are physically fit and have the type of job that would require them to be in an attacking column. I think I got that right. Is that, that's, that's pretty much what we came up with, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, you, 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 got, it, uh, you got it exactly. You, you know, the only other thing I'll, I'll add is we're, we're relying on that, 
on that notation that um, I found in, in May of 78 to account for 1777. And we know that that could be erroneous. But I'll say um, no matter what we come up with, you can put the two words at least for the number that we have available because we, we know we're, we're probably really underplaying the true numbers on any of those columns. Uh, for example, on September 3rd, I have a feeling that most of Washington, most of the on-command wasn't detached while they while they moved into Delaware. I, they they must all be, except for those that are, that we already know were left behind to to uh, protect the forts, and they um, most of those were would be with the army. So we think a higher percentage of on-command is with the army in in September compared to May of '78. But we decided to use the same formula. Yeah, and just to kind of follow up on that, one of the biggest chunks of the on-command in the September returns are either with serving with uh, uh, Maxwell's Light Infantry, which was a newly created force, or were uh, with Daniel Morgan's uh, detachment that went up to Saratoga, because they were all detached from regiments with Washington's main army. Yeah, and we did, and we did account for those. Yeah, we did, yep. How does Washington's army compare in size uh, to his army's opponent and maybe some other armies in the field at the time? Okay, so um, let's start with uh, early September, getting ready for Brandywine. So, like, uh, there's roughly 18,000 British personnel that get off the ships um, outside Elkton, Maryland. Uh, But not all those are combat troops. He's got camp followers with him. He's got support personnel with him. So he's got between fifteen and 16,000 combat troops to launch what's basically going to be the start of the, the land version of the, of the Philadelphia campaign. And then we know from our returns that, you know, Washington, just prior to Brandywine, is, is pushing seventeen to 18,000 troops somewhere in there. Um, so he outnumbers him at Brandywine. Now, I'm not saying he's got the best quality troops at Brandywine, because 3,000 of them are Pennsylvania militia. But numerically on paper, he outnumbers Howe at Brandywine. Now, Washington's going to take considerable casualties between then and Germantown at places like Brandywine, Paoli, some at the Battle of the Clouds, and some other minor skirmishes. But um, what my research has found is that uh, most of those casualties are going to be replaced by reinforcements from a Connecticut brigade, a uh, and then the Maryland and New Jersey militia that's going to join the army uh, prior to the attack on Germantown, and so Washington's army on paper is fairly equal in size to what it was at Brandywine. The difference is he has more sick present. So uh, again, getting back to that concept of a defending force versus an attacking force, the actual force available to Washington to launch that attack on Germantown is. It's a little bit smaller than Germantown, but bigger than I think previous historians have thought. In fact, it's bigger than what I thought when I had when I published Germantown last year, based on our, our more current research now. Um, now Howe, his army's not getting the reinforcements and replacements that Howe or that Washington is. So he's suffering casualties too, not quite on the extent that the American army is, but he's suffering casualties. And then he's making detachments from his army to garrison Wilmington and Chester and Philadelphia uh, to the point that the army that he has camped with him at Germantown is a shadow of the force he had to launch his attack at Brandywine. And so he's significantly outnumbered by Washington's attacking force at Germantown. And then we enter this weird 
uh, period where um, the focus shifts towards the Delaware River. And so we had to make a decision when we were writing the article, do we focus on how many men Washington has camped with him in, in Whitpain and White Marsh um, in November and you know uh, late October through early December, or do we factor in every man available to Washington for all operations? And I kind of decided we were going to take the path that we had to factor in everybody because it was affecting Washington's decision-making for garrisoning those forts um, at the same time contemplating another attack on Philadelphia. So uh, we factored in New Jersey militia and the troops garrisoning Fort Mercer and Fort Mifflin and Pennsylvania militia that's detached from the main army. Um, and then the other thing that's happening is following Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga, a number of units from the Northern Theater, several brigades, are going to be ordered south to reinforce Washington. So Daniel Morgan's riflemen return. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I think it was five brigades joined the Army from the Northern Army, several other independent regiments, more artillery is going to come down. So Washington is heavily reinforced to the point by early December, he's got something like 24,000 guys camped at White Marsh. Um, and then now Howe's going to get uh, some negligible reinforcements. He gets the 17th Light Dragoons. He gets a brigade of Ansbach, uh, 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 German infantry regiments. And then he gets a, a, a British infantry brigade uh, coming down from the New York garrison to reinforce his army. But it doesn't match what Washington ends up with. So by early December, Howe has maybe uh, 17, 18,000 guys, which basically replaces his casualties and maybe adds just a marginal amount. So he's heavily outnumbered by Washington. The problem is, and I don't know, let me make sure it's not one of our later questions here. The problem is Washington... It takes so long for him to get those reinforcements from Burgoyne that um, they almost come too late for him to make a final decision about whether he's going to launch that uh, uh, second attack towards Philadelphia. Um, and I think that's a – oh, no, it is my question. I'm going to let you go. Unless, Gary, what's the follow-up? I think that's our next question. <laughs> nope, that's a, 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 that was a thoroughly answered from my end. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Despite these numbers, Washington will struggle to utilize his large numbers during this campaign. Uh, why? Well, it basically comes down to the River War, what I call the River War, the fighting that swirls around Fort Mercer and Mifflin and, and um, some other expeditions that are sent in the South Jersey. That doesn't really come to an end uh, until almost the last week of November uh, is when Nathaniel Green's column that goes over there to... Uh, support and ultimately help evacuate Fort Mercer is returning to the main army. So it's it's almost December 1st before his army, that 24,000 number that I, I cited, is fully assembled at White Marsh. Um, several of those reinforcing brigades that are coming from the Northern Army aren't arriving at that camp till late November or um, the first couple days of December. So he's not fully assembled. And, and Washington is constantly sending dispatches to the north and some of his staff officers up there telling Gates, you got to get these these units down here. Uh, you know, I'm still thinking about this campaign not being over and I want to go attack Philadelphia. I want to hit Howe again. And so, but he needs the numbers to do that because um, his army's still not the quality of the British army. This is still pre-Valley Forge. But he, so he needs the numbers. And so those numbers don't fully assemble till 
you know, the very beginning of December. And, you know, just as he's contemplating making a move, Hal launches an operation um, known as the White Marsh oper- uh, Expedition or series of skirmishes. So he comes out and, and takes the initiative. And so that, that kind of precludes Washington uh, uh, making that contemplated attack, but he doesn't give up on it. Um, he's actually contemplating still launching that attack on Philadelphia after they're at Valley Forge. Um, and we, we kind of hinted at that a little bit at the end of our article. Washington doesn't fully give up probably till the end of December, his dreams of going and attacking Hal. Um, so hopefully that answers that question. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, um, when you asked me that, Brady, on the last time I was on your podcast about a, um, the Clement Biddle letter, I wasn't going to fabricate uh, how a letter is going to affect the revolution, but I, I can uh, a little more confidently say that the, the work that Mike and I put together on this article and, and the previous one on Valley Forge, I think, uh, does have a, a larger and more lasting impact about how we, how we appreciate the revolution. I think, first of all, just the appreciation of the size of the force that Washington is working with instead of uh, we always know about the size that he's working against, but the size he's working with helps us to appreciate the, the future commissary and quartermaster's woes that he's going to be suffering uh, throughout 77 and 78. And the other thing you got to, when Mike was talking about those numbers, I, I hope people appreciate when, when Mike says close to 25,000 men at White Marsh, that would make that the second largest city in the country. At that time, uh, certainly larger than the po- uh, the civilian populace of New York City and only smaller than Philadelphia. Nobody would have thought that we'd call that for White Marsh for about a month. But when I say White Marsh, that also includes the Gulf. So we're dealing with uh, in- incredible numbers of troops. And um, I threw it out there. Um, and maybe uh, maybe a reader of the article or a listener to the podcast can challenge me on it. But I think in, in a single a single um region force that that might be the largest deployed army on the face of the earth uh, at the end of at the end of 1777 so i think that the size is the one part to consider the other thing goes uh, that i would add to this it goes to um i remember uh the historian joe ellis bringing up this band of brothers effect talking about those loyal soldiers from uh 76 that served through the war and through all the hardships and i think mike can uh, attest to this too when he looks at the post brandywine and post germantown letters we always treat brandywine and germantown as uh as american disasters and uh certainly it it led to the cabal so obviously congress and and um and peripherally that's how people looked at it but the soldiers didn't look at it that way and you look at their post-war accounts, they, they, um, they talk about wanting to have another crack at how, even though this one wasn't successful, for example. And I looked at it by the way we explored in our article. I'd done a lot of Civil War um, research with numbers, and I see tremendous amounts of desertions in, uh, in very successful campaigns. I think I cited Stonewall Jackson's uh, famous Shenandoah Valley campaign of 1862, where he had 2,100 desertions in a, in a three-week period. I would think the the greatest avenue of desertions would be these new 1777 troops that we're having to deal with uh, with 1,300 losses at Brandywine, um, the the misery of marching to and from the battle, the clouds with uh, with that heavy nor'easter on them, and certainly open avenues to say enough of this, let's get out of here. You don't see that at all. In fact, uh, I think I think that the the desertions were 
um, surprisingly low. And maybe that band of brother effects that Dr. Ellis had talked about, I think applies a lot more to those new 1777 soldiers. I know they had signed up for three years of the war, but they certainly, uh, they certainly seemed by what we know, by what they write and, and how they stayed with the army, uh, they end up being um, a very good nucleus of, of, of high-powered troops. And I would, I would also add to that, we talk about von Steuben's training at the end, beginning at the end of March at Valley Forge. Nothing trains an army together than fighting in battles together, even though they're not, um, not successful encounters. But I would say the army that went into, uh, into Valley Forge um, had Paoli and, and Brandywine and Germantown under their belts. They, they fought in defenses. They, they fought in being surprised attack. Uh, they they fought in planning a surprise attack themselves, and I think that uh, that kind of battle experience, in addition to the training that they're going to receive in the spring of '78, are going to make these uh, very high quality soldiers that march out to the uh, Mammoth campaign in the summer of uh, 1778. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And just to follow up, you know, I completely agree with everything Gary said. I, I think until recently, maybe the last 10 to 15 years, most histories of the revolution have focused heavily on the social and political effects of the war. And and to the detriment of these military operations, it, it's only till recently I, I feel that um, these campaigns and battles have been viewed more from their military aspects and how they affected the social and political outcomes. Um, and so, you know, I was trained, you know, by Bob Crick at Fredericksburg, you know, on Civil War history, and this is how you do history, and this is how you tell it. And, you know, what you, one of the ways you do that is you, 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 you got to dive into the numbers. And so I don't know how you really can look at a campaign unless you have a good sense of those, those numbers, because it's going to affect everything. Logistics of moving an army, logistics of supplying an army, um, how the commanders of those units make those decisions uh, based on their force available to them. And so I, I think this gives us a better understanding of what difficulties Washington's dealing with through the fall of 1777, and that's why I think it's important. Gary Eckelbarger and Michael Harris, thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Brady. Appreciate it, Brady. Thanks a lot. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.